Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you that you are such a great and an awesome God. And we thank you, Lord, that even at the end of a long day after work and school and just other things that are going on in life, this hectic lives at home even, Father, that we can come and gather together as a family. We can just sit at your feet, Lord, and we can just listen to, Lord, that your Holy Spirit teach us, Father. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that man would decrease, that your Spirit would increase. I pray that our hearts... If everyone here would be receptive to what your Holy Spirit would minister to each one of us, Father. And Lord, I pray for Patrick as well as he's ministering to our kids, just filmed overflowing, Father. Give the kids ears to hear. So we love you, we praise you, we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Tonight I want to talk to you about victorious Christian living. How to live a Christian life in a victorious way. A lot of people become Christians, they give their life to Jesus Christ, they walk an aisle, they pray a prayer. Maybe most... Most, maybe even all of the people here tonight, you've already done that, and you truly are born again. But then, even though you're born again and you've got a relationship with God, there's still something there where you struggle. You still have difficulties. You still have times when your focus gets off the kingdom of God. And you know what? As Christians, we're going to struggle. And you have to remember that the Bible says we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness in high places. And our, our daily walk, we battle between the spirit and the flesh. When I was a youth pastor, I used to use this analogy, that there's two dogs or tigers fighting for control of your life every day, the fleshly tiger and the spiritual tiger. And the one that wins the battle is the one that you feed the most. And if you feed your flesh all day long and you never feed yourself spiritually, guess what? Your flesh is going to kick your tail all day long, right? You're going to fall into temptation, you're going to get your eyes off of God, you're going to be discouraged, distracted. But if you feed yourself spiritually and you starve and deny the flesh, it'll be just the opposite. And we're going to see a picture of that as we look at the Word tonight. Matthew 26 says, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Romans 8, 8 says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Galatians 5, 17 says this, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and those are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So tonight as we continue to look at the journey through the wilderness, we're going to see just the contrast between following after the Spirit and following after the flesh. And it's something that everybody in this room struggles with, battles with every single day of your life. Because again, the flesh won't be dead until we get to heaven. Amen? We're all, it's all part of that sanctification process. We've been, we've been set apart, we've been born again, we've been justified, and now we're being sanctified, and eventually we will be glorified if we've given our life to him so as we witness god providing for his children as water comes from the walk as israel's victorious over the amalekites god also has some specific things i believe he wants to share with calvary santa cruz with every one of us he's got a message for us tonight even though this is something that happened hundreds of years ago it applies to us tonight so let me just catch up real quick i'll not try not to spend too much time in review but after 400 years of bondage finally there came a point where God came and delivered them out of bondage. But remember, it wasn't until they cried out to the Lord that their bondage ended. Why were they in bondage to begin with? Because they had disobeyed God. We know that in their journey into the wilderness, they've had several stops. The first place they stopped was called Sukkoth, which is tent town. It just points to the fact that this is our temporary vessel. The second place they stopped was a place called Ethan, which means with them. So even though they're on the edge of the wilderness, God was with them. God will never leave us nor forsake us. The third stop was a place called Piahiroth. It's a, there are two mountains there, Migdal and Piahiroth. The Red Sea was behind them. And we know it looked like they were between a rock and a hard place and there was nothing they could do. There was no answer. But here's the good news. When there is no way, God makes a way. 
Amen? And when there is no way and God makes a way, then God is the one who's glorified, not men. And so what happened was we know that God commanded and Moses held up the staff and this Red Sea parted and they trekked through right on the middle of the Red Sea. And God used the Red Sea as both a place of deliverance and a place of judgment as he brought judgment upon Egypt. The fifth stop was a place called Elam. Remember we talked about that? It was like an oasis in the middle of the wilderness. It was a place filled with palm trees and, and all this water. And we talked about how God in the midst of the wilderness can bring us to a place of, of rest, a place of nourishment. And there was 12 wells, we talked about that pointing to the 12 apostles and the 70 palm trees pointing to the first 70 disciples that were sent out. Now last week, we looked as they trekked into a new land, it was called the wilderness of sin. Now you think that was a good place or a bad place? I don't think we have to think about that too long. But they went into the wilderness of sin, and we know that as soon as they got there, they began to cry out and murmur because they had nothing to eat. Now, they had seen God deliver them over and over and over and over again, but yet their faith was waning real quick. And you know what? I know that probably none of you have ever been guilty of that, but I have. Where, you know, you see God do something awesome, and then the next minute something difficult happens, and we're already out of, we're bent out of shape, and we're right back in the flesh again. And that's exactly what happens with the children of Israel. They start to cry out. And we know that they murmured against Moses, and they cried out against Moses, and they said, oh, you know, God's forgotten about us. You should have just left us in Egypt to die. What, aren't there enough graves in Egypt? You should have just left us there. And then we know God provided for him supernaturally. You guys remember what he did? He rained manna down from the sky. And what's awesome about that is manna is a picture of Christ. It's also a picture of his word, in that the manna was very small and round, representing the humility of Christ and his perfection. It was white, representing his holiness. And then it said it was, it was like bread, which is a representation of what we see in communion today. And then it said it was sweet. It tasted like it had honey on it. And so it was sweet, just like the Lord and his presence is so sweet to us. Amen? When we draw near to him. And so they were fed with the manna. And, you know, here they are, and it says that they were, God gave them manna for the next 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. So they were taken care of. They had the manna. And you know, as Keith Green said, they were probably making banana bread and all kinds of stuff, right? And so they had manna for breakfast. Man and every day they had to go out and they only had enough manna for the day. And at the end of the, and if they didn't gather it by the time the sun came up, it would melt. And so it caused people to get up off their duff and go out and get their food every morning, right? And it caused them to trust God because if they took any extra food, more than they needed for that day, it would rot. And so they had to learn to trust God morning by morning. You know, it's a great place to be. Trusting God morning by morning, every day, getting up early and spending time with Him. So this, tonight we're going to look at Exodus 17. We're going to look at a couple different things like I talked about. We're going to see some really heavy spiritual significance for us today. And we're going to begin by looking at water coming from a rock. And this is awesome. We're look at verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on a journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Now, they lead the wilderness of sin, and what delivered them from the wilderness of sin? The Lord did. That's what it says, right? The Lord brought them out of the wilderness of sin, and the only thing that can deliver any one of us here tonight from the wilderness of sin is Jesus Christ. Amen? He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. He also provided for them in the wilderness of sin manna. And manna is what sustained them and delivered them from their sinfulness. And manna, again, is a representation of both Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Now, rephidim means rest. So they've been feasting on manna. They're in the wilderness of sin, and they go into this, this rest stop, this place of rest. 
But when they get there, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you before. I, you know, I used to travel a lot and drive back and forth from northern to southern California to visit my parents. And I knew where every rest stop was. And especially with my wife in the car. Because she needed rest stops a lot. So we'd be driving, and you're looking, you know, you're waiting for the next rest stop. Oh, 12 miles, 10 miles, 8 miles. And you finally get there, and it's really a bummer if you ever go to a rest stop, and you go to find the facilities that you're there to use, and they're like locked. That's no bueno, right? You get to the rest stop, there's no rest here at all. I've got to get back in the car and go get somewhere quick, right? And so they come to this rest stop thinking it's a place of rest, refidim. Place of rest, out of the wilderness of sin. God led them there. He's feeding them. They're rejoicing. God has come through once again, and they get to Rephidim, and there's no water. Now, you have to remember that back in those days, having water was a little different than now. You just didn't go over to Spicket and turn water on, you know, and get flavored waters and every other kind of water you want around here, right? We got water coming out of our ears. We got all kinds of water. Well, back in those days, they would find a place to live that would be near a water source. They were digging wells. Going out to get water was a major ordeal. And so for them, having no water was a bummer. They got all the manna in the world, but they don't have any water. And, you know, they got, some, they got some, some bread, honey tasting bread, but they're like, you know, we're going to die of thirst if we don't get some water. Now, God had already done some pretty miraculous things, and you would think that having all the things that He had done, that they would still trust in Him. You know, they've been through the trial in the wilderness. They've tasted the sweetness of the manna. God's taken them into this place of rest. But look how they respond. Look at verse 3. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you've brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Again, how would you like to pastor this church? Moses is like the pastor. There's two to three million people and they're all whining. And they're all whinging and they're all complaining. Now, let me ask you a question. Have they seen God move one or two times so far? I mean, were they there when all ten plagues happened? Didn't, do they, have they forgotten about those? Didn't they see God rain and stuff, you know, lice and hail and turning water into blood? I mean, all that happened right in front of them, didn't it? After all the ten plagues, what happened next? The, the pillar of fire led them and the pillar of smoke. Pillar of fire, they'd follow it and God led them through the wilderness. Then after that happened, what happened? They got to the Red Sea, and they saw the sea open up, and they walked through it, and it shut on the Egyptians. That's pretty awesome. Well, then now all of a sudden, they're on the other side, and remember, they went to the place to drink water, and the water was bitter. You guys remember that from a few weeks ago? And what did Moses do? God commanded him. He went and picked up a tree. He dropped it in the water, and the water became sweet. Why? Because the tree made the water sweet. The cross turns bitterness into sweetness, amen? And that's what the tree represented. And so they didn't have water then. It was, they called it mora for bitterness, and God gave them sweet water. Then they went from there, and they were crying out about food, and what happened? God brought quail out of the sky. Then He rained manna down from the sky. And now they're following the Lord again, and as soon as they get there and there's no water, they start complaining. Oh man, you should have left us there. We're all going to die. We're all doomed. And you know the sad part about this is, that there's a lot of Christians that live that way today. We, we act like we love God, but then as soon as something goes sideways, just a little bit, we're murmuring and we're complaining and we're crying out to the Lord. You know what? That's when people watch us most as Christians. And we, you know, again, when you squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. Amen? You squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. You squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. We ought to be a reflection of Him when we go through difficult times. And these guys instead are whiners. And you're thinking, man, if I'm Moses, I'd be like, Lord, can I have a new batch? Could you just smoke these guys and just give me a whole new group? And you know what? Later, Moses does do that. We're going to see that in a few chapters. But they're complaining, and it says there that they're tempting God. 
He says, why do you tempt the Lord? Because when we complain, and we talked about, talked about this last week, when we complain about those that God's placed in authority over us, we are complaining about the Lord. Who is the one that gave you the boss that you have right now? God did. Amen? And you are to pray for him and minister to him or her and encourage them and be salt and light to them. And when we murmur and complain, we're complaining against God. Who put you in the neighborhood you're living in? God did. Who put you where everything that's going on in your life, God put you there. So when you complain, you're murmuring against God. They're complaining, but God was going to do something miraculous. You know what? I absolutely know that the, op- the greatest opportunities I've ever had to share my faith has been when I've gone through difficulty. You know why? Because that's when the magnifying glass is on you. I'll never forget about 10 years ago, they had layoffs at our company, and they, br- they brought out the list, and I was on the list, and, and unless a certain number of people took their retirement, I was going to get laid off. And at the time, I'm in sales, and at the time, I was the top salesperson in the whole state, and a bunch of the reps came up and said, well, that doesn't seem fair that they're going to keep a guy that's in like the bottom 2% and they're going to fire you just because he's been here a week longer than you. And I, you know what? In my flesh, I was thinking, yeah, that's right. That ain't fair. You know, I mean, you know, that's how your flesh responds, right? No, that ain't fair. But then the Lord just said, Dave, I'm in control. And I've got another plan. And you just trust me. And so I had a Bible study there and we all got together and every one of us was on the list. And we just had joy and it was okay. And we prayed about it and said, God, we know, what you, you know whatever you want to do, Lord. You know, you gave me this job. You want to give me a different one. It's okay. Well, people are walking around the office talking about, you know, I'm going to stick a gun in my mouth if I lose my job, you know. And, it, and they're like, all oh, you Christians, what's up with you guys? How come you're so happy? Well, we're going to heaven. Amen? And you know what? Even if you take my job away, it's okay because Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider, and he said he would provide for me, and I trust him. And you know what? We had a ch- I had a chance to lead two people to the Lord because I almost got laid off. Now, let me ask you a question. Isn't that God? Isn't that, you know, those trials we go through that we murmur and complain about, God before the foundation of the world said, I want to get this guy's attention. Here's what I'll do. Layoffs at Pac Bell. Everybody will see, and then, here's an opportunity for the gospel. You know, you find out that your health's waning. You find out that something's happening with your finances. Something's, uh, you know, that you just didn't even see coming. And you know what? The world is watching. And these guys complain and murmur, and we see they're faithless people. But God is still going to do something miraculous, even though they're faithless. Even more faithless, God is awesome and God is faithful. So they complain against God. They tempt God, it says, because they tempt God's mercy, basically. And they, go, and they just keep murmuring and complaining. Now, what does Moses do? Okay, Lord, smoke him. No, that's not what he did. He's got the heart of a pastor. Look what he does. And Moses, so Moses cried out to the Lord. You know what? Those of us who are faithful need to pray for those who are faithless. Amen? Those who are murmuring and complaining and griping, instead of saying, oh man, and again, especially if they don't know God. When a dog barks, we shouldn't be surprised because that's what dogs do. And when an unsaved person acts like they don't know God, we shouldn't be surprised because that's what unsaved people do. Amen? But if someone who knows God acts like they don't know Him, that's, that's sad. That grieves the heart of God. That breaks His heart. And so we see here that they're murmuring and complaining. And what does Moses do? He doesn't say, call down fire. He says, Lord, and he cries out to the Lord on their behalf. He intercedes on their behalf. You know what? This is an example of what a pastor ought to be like. If his people are hurting, he ought to be praying. Amen? He ought to be interceding. You know what? It is my privilege to pray for you guys every week. I have a list of all your names sitting in the office, at the church office. All of you are in the directory. And I just go through and pray for you guys. And I don't do it because I'm some holy guy. I do it because I love you guys. And God has given me a supernatural love for you guys. And I'm burdened for you guys. 
and I want to pray for you. And here's Moses. He looks at the people, and his heart breaks for him, and he just cries out to the Lord on their behalf. That's the heart of a pastor. He should be praying for his people, and that's what Moses does. He's praying for the people. But look what it says here. What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. This is the ultimate sign of unbelief. The ultimate sign of anger and bitterness is they would stone somebody to death. And here's Moses. Now let me ask you a question. What kind of shape would they be in if they stoned Moses? Who's the guy that led them through the Red Sea? Who's the guy that prayed and God rained the manna down? Who's the guy that prayed and the quail came down? Who's the guy that put the rod into the water and it turned into blood? Who's the guy that God's using mightily? It would be Moses. They get rid of Moses, they're in big trouble. So they're ready to stone Moses. Why? Well, we haven't any water for a couple days. That's it. You're done. We're all going to die. Let's kill Moses first. And you can imagine they're just, they're just fired up. Two to three million people. Great church. Man, I'd love to be that bad. So here they are. There's murmuring and complaining. And Moses cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, what should I do? Lord, they're ready to kill me. They want to kill the, the, the very picture of God. You know what's awesome? Moses is a type of Jesus Christ. He's the deliverer. And when Jesus came to deliver the people, what did they want to do to him? They wanted to kill him, just like they wanted to kill Moses. Why? Because he didn't come and give them physical stuff. And why are these guys murmuring? Because he's not giving them enough physical stuff. Look at verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod, excuse me, your rod with which you, stu- you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders in Israel. Now the rod, remember that this rod was simply the shepherd's staff that Moses was using when God called him into ministry. Moses was just watching a bunch of sheep, minding his own business one day. He'd been out there for 40 years. He thought this is the lot for the rest of his life. This is what I'm called to do, is watch sheep, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's an honorable profession. So he's out there watching the sheep, and he looks up on the hill, and what does he see? He sees a burning bush. The bush is burning, but the bush isn't burning. There's fire, but it's not being consumed. And he goes up to the burning bush to take a closer look, and, the, and God says to him, Moses, take off your feet, your sandals, because your feet are on holy ground. He takes off his sandals, and the Lord tells him that you're going to be the deliverer of Israel. And Moses goes, no, 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 no. I'm a stutterer, Lord, I can't do it. And the Lord says, no, you're going anyway, I'm sending you, you're the one, I'm calling you, you're going. And God sends Moses. And so Moses, this is the stick that he just leaned on while he was watching sheep. But what's awesome about it is this stick has now been used mightily by God, because remember, when he first went in and stood before Pharaoh, what happened to the stick when he threw it on the ground? Who remembers? Turned into a serpent. Serpent is a typology or a picture of what in the Bible? Satan or sin. Okay? He picks the stick up. The next time he takes the stick and he sticks it in the water. Water turns from water to what? Who remembers? Blood. What happened the next time when we see him? He, he used it in a few more of the plagues, but then what about when they're standing at the Red Sea and he held the stick up? What happened to the Red Sea? It parted. When he put the stick back down, what happened to the Red Sea? It closed back up. You know what the rod's a picture of? Very clearly, it's the cross. Because you know what? What was defeated at the cross? The serpent. Amen? What was it that happened when he put the water in? The blood. And what was it that came out of our Savior on the cross? It was his shed blood. What, ha- what is the Red Sea a picture of? It's a picture of God's deliverance. The rod was held up, the sea parted, and those who were following him traveled through and were delivered. Those who were against him were brought into judgment. The cross will either save you or bring judgment upon you. And now we're going to see that this rod, once again, 
be used as a typology or a picture of the cross. And just take a look at this. So it turns the serpent, it parts the Red Sea, it closes the Red Sea. And the Lord tells him, verse 6, strike the rock and water will come out. Now, I want to read something to you. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. This is out of uh, 1 Corinthians. And here's what it says. And, and it's awesome because Paul speaks about this rock. It's in ver- and you can write it down. You can look at it later. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-4. through 4. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. That's the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, that's manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock that they're talking about is Jesus. And he says, I want you to take this rod and I want you to smack it against the rock. Taking the rod and smacking it against the rock, smoting the rock or striking the rock, is a picture of the crucifixion. Because Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, the Bible says. Amen? And this rod was taken and placed and smashed against him, and it's a picture of his crucifixion. The wise man builds his house upon the rock, the Bible says. The stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In the Old Testament, God is called the rock of my salvation. In Matthew 16, 18, he says, I say to you that you are Peter, small rock, Petros. And he says, upon this rock, pointing to himself, upon this Petra, I will build my church. Who's the rock? It's Jesus. And so he's commanded to take the rod and go smote the rock that the water may pour out. Again, the reason there was no water in this wilderness at this point right now in Rephidim, in this place of rest, was that God wanted to speak to His people. Both the people that were standing there and the people in this room tonight. The reason there was no water is God wanted to bring water forth from the rock. So that people would have to come to the rock to find the water. Amen? Because that's the only place where living water flows out. And so we see here, it says in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you at the rock on the rock in Horeb. Now this is interesting. The Lord says, I will stand there. Horeb is also a word used for Sinai. I think it's interesting. They're in the plain of Sinai. It's the same place where he would receive the law. It's interesting that in the plain where the law would come, we see a picture of the cross. Why? Because the law shows us our need for the cross. Amen? The law proves to us that we are sinners. The Bible says it is a schoolmaster that drives us to the cross. When you look at the law, you realize, I'm a stinking sinner. Amen? You look at it and you say, oh, yeah, I've done that. Done it. Yep. Oh, took names. Oh, I haven't always honored my parents. I'm a sinner. And because we're sinners, we're in need of a Savior. So in the plain where he would later go up in a few more chapters and receive the law, there they are. There's the rock. The rock is going to be smote, and water is going to pour out of it. Strike the rock with the rod, a picture of the crucifixion. When the struck, when, when the, he struck a sword in the side of Jesus on the cross, what poured out? Water. This is a picture of the cross. When they smote the rock, water poured out. When they pierced our Savior's side, water poured out. This points to Jesus. How can you not see Jesus in the Old Testament? It blows my mind people say, oh, I don't like the Old Testament. So You've got to be kidding. This is so awesome. Amen? You look in here and all you can see is Jesus, 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 Jesus in every chapter. If you really look, you'll see him there because that's who he is. 
And it says there, so what? The, the Lord had led them out of this place of manna, this place of feasting, this place of satisfaction. He delivered them from the wilderness of sin, and He directed them right into a very dry place. And you might say, well, why would He do that? Because He wanted them to thirst for Him. He wanted to take them out of a place of being satisfied with just the manna, and He said, I want you thirsty for more. I want you thirsty for a deeper and a better understanding of who I am. Now this is going to shock a few of you folks, but you know what, because most of you know that I love the Bible. Love the Bible. 66 books, 40 authors, 3 continents, 3 languages, 1,500 years, 1 central theme, no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? Love the Bible. The Bible's awesome. But you know what? God, want, God gave us His Word, and the Bible says He elevates His Word above His name. But He wants us to have even more than His Word. Now, I want to say this. I want to make sure it's really clear. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Anything God gives us will always agree with His Word. Amen? It's not going to be some funky experience where people are barking in the Spirit and stuff like that. You've got that going on in Toronto. People are barking in the Spirit, roaring in the Spirit, and drunk. No, that's noise because it's not confirmed in the Word of God. But I believe that as Christians, God wants us to be so deeply in love with Him that we thirst and hunger to know Him better. And that the Word of God would drive us to the rock. That we might see that water pouring out. And let's read on, because I want you to see this, but I want to read to you out of John 7. I'll tell you what this water represents. Let the Word tell you, not me. John 7, verses 37 through 39 says this. On the last and that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom these believing in Him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. So what is this water representation that comes out of when the rock is smoked and the water comes out? It's the Holy Spirit. Amen? And you know what happens when you fall in love with the Lord? You know what happens when you draw near to Him and you drink of Him? He fills you to overflowing with this Holy Spirit. Amen? God wants us not just to have the Holy Spirit with us. That's the whole world, and they calm their conscience, and they say the Holy Spirit is with them. That's how they know right and wrong. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit goes from being with you to being in you. You're born again, you're going to heaven. But you know what? I believe God wants us to give Him 100% of who we are. Amen? Less of me. John the Baptist, Jesus said, Of men born among women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he might increase. There's got to be less of me so there can be more of him. Amen? I've got to die so he can rule and reign on the throne of my life. And so we see here that the rock is a picture of Christ. The rock being smote is a picture of the crucifixion. And what flows out is a picture, I believe, of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? We should desire that the Holy Spirit would fall afresh on every single one of us. The man is a picture of Christ incarnate. Rephidim, a picture of his rest. They struck the rock and the water gushing out, a picture of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here tonight and you've given your life to Jesus Christ. But you know what? Your walk with God is dry. You would say, you know what, I know I'm a Christian, I know I'm going to heaven, but you know what? I don't have a fire for God. I don't have a zeal for God. I don't have a, a passion for Him. I'm not supernaturally indwelt with the love of God. I don't have a supernatural love for people, a supernatural boldness. Those things aren't a part of my life. I'm, I've got my get out of hell free card, I know that for sure, it's in my wallet, and I'm going to go to heaven, I know that's going to happen. But you know what, I also know that I'm dry, I also know that my walk with God is, you know, a few hours a week, it's not 24-7, it's not the passion of my life, He's not my best friend. And I believe that the Lord wants to pour out that living water on every single one of us in this room. Amen? 
He wants us to go from just knowing about God or having a, a relationship with Him to being on fire for Him. What's the difference between the Apostle Paul and the other Christians of his day? Fire, calling, passion, burden. Where does that come from? The Holy Spirit. And so we see here that the rock, rock is smote and the water pours out. And you know what? It's living water. If you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. Verse 7. So he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel because they tempted the Lord God saying, is the Lord among us or not? He called the name of this place where the water poured out a place of testing because the people were testing God. They wanted another sign. They wanted another wonder. They were doubting the Lord. And the Lord said, they called it a place of testing and a place of striving or contention. May we not be so spiritually dry that we begin to look at life through physical eyes. May we not be so spiritually dry that when we look at things, all we do is look at it from a physical perspective. You know what? If you looked at it from a physical perspective at the Red Sea, you'd have cast in your chips. Right? You'd have said, forget it. We're done. There's no way out. And you would have missed the most awesome miracle. You know what? These guys are looking at things from a physical. We don't have any water. What are we going to do? And the reality is that God was going to do something miraculous. If you're you're backed up to the Red Sea right now, I want you to know God's going to do something awesome. Amen? Because He promises to take care of you. That's our God. And He's not a liar. Amen? And so we see here that these people are contentious with God, but God is trying to pour out on them an incredible blessing, and they're going to miss it. Let's move on and look at the victory over the Amalekites. But again, to live a victorious Christian life, we must not only be born again, but filled with and led by the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The Holy Spirit is a person, by the way. It's not an essence. It's not a being. It's not some steam in the sky or something. He's a person. And the person of the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Amen? That's what happens when you're saved. You're sealed, down payment, going to heaven. He comes to live inside of you. But the reality is, it's that spiritual battle between the spirit and the flesh. It takes place every single day. We must die to flesh that the the spirit might fill us. Now we're going to move on. It's interesting, right after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what happens next? What happens next is a battle. And you know what? It's amazing when you do something awesome for the kingdom. When God gets a hold of you, God has a calling upon you, there's always an enemy waiting for you right around the corner. As soon as you respond to something, Lord, I want to give my life to you. You go out and you get baptized or you go out and share your faith with somebody. The enemy's right there waiting. And he wants to deter what God's doing in your life. And here the enemy is waiting. Verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Amalek, the Amalekites. Amalek is a descendant of Esau. Esau is, a, is of the seed of the flesh. Remember the story back in Genesis, Jacob and Esau. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That's what God said. Now why did he hate Esau? Because Esau was a man after the flesh. Esau was an ungodly man. He was a carnal man. He was a physically, foc- physically focused man. Amalek was his descendants. Amalek was the grand- great-grandson of Esau. And so we see here the Amalekites were godless people extremely godless. They're a typology or a picture of the flesh. Remember that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. How carnal could you be? You know what? I'm so, I could care less about spiritual things. Give me a bowl of soup and you can have it. You can have it for a bowl of soup. I'll trade you. Jacob's like, I'm all over that. Here you go. Bowl of soup. Done. Right? Well, Esau was physically focused and so were those who came after him. The Amalekites, their name literally means laughing up of others. They were out to destroy They feared no one. They were vile and mean and vicious. That's the kind of people that the Amalekites were. A typology of the flesh. 
You know, the Bible says our flesh is always warring against our spirit. And to keep us from entering into the fullness of God's promise for us, it's always trying to get in the way. If you try to defeat the flesh in your own strength, you're going to fail every single time. The Bible says, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. Amen? You can't be more godly by just trying hard. God wants you to quit trying and start trusting. He wants you to quit trying and start kneeling. Amen? And start confessing and start asking for His help. He wants you to die, not try. Amen? You know, we often want to, oh, I've got to do this, I've got, got to put down 47 more things and somehow earn God's favor. And that's what all the cults do. All the cults think they're going to live such a good life that somehow God will owe them something and they'll, they'll cash it in when they die someday. That's not how it works. He paid the price. It is finished. He did it all. Amen? And all He wants us to do is die to self and allow Him to live through us. Now, the Amalekites were a typology of the flesh. I'm not going to read it, but in Deuteronomy 25, here's what they did. When the Israelites were traveling... They came up behind and they found the crippled people and the people that were falling behind, the invalid, the older people, and they came up behind and killed them and took their stuff. And the Bible says that God saw it and said, I will not forget what you've done, Amalek. I will not forget. I'm going to blot you out from the face of the earth. Malachites were vicious and vile people, type of the flesh. Later in 1 Samuel, we're going to see, it's going to be a while before we get there, but when we get to 1 Samuel, we're going to see that God tells Saul to go and destroy all the Amalekites. Man, woman, child, donkey, ox, everything they've got, kill it all. And people, people struggle with that and say, what kind of God would wipe out all the Amalekites? Why would they wipe out all the people? Why would they wipe out their animals? Because the Amalekites were godless. They turned their back on God, and it was God's righteous judgment. We know what happened, though, is that Saul was the king at the time, who was, shouldn't have been king, was appointed by men, not by God. And what happened? He said, go and kill all the Amalekites. And what did Saul do? He brought back the king of the flesh. He brought back Agag. And we know the story that he said, I brought it back so that I could, I could and I brought other animals back so I could make sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord said, to obey is better than sacrifice. Amen? He wants us to walk in obedience. So what happened? He, brought, he brings him back, and we know that God rips the kingdom away from Saul. And do you know who it was that discovered, Saul commits suicide, but you know who was standing right there with him and who brought back news to David? It was an Amalekite. Da- His own death came basically at the hand of an Amalekite, but if he had killed all the Amalekites, it wouldn't have been that way. So what happens here is the Amalekites are vicious and vile, wicked people. Here comes Israel, and they run into the Amalekites. Typology of the flesh. The spirit against the flesh. How do we have victory in that battle? Watch this, these next seven verses, eight verses, and you're going to see how to have victory in that battle between the spirit and the flesh. Let's take a look at verse 9. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill, the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua, Joshua's name means Jehovah is salvation. That's a great name. Joshua. I know the webs you're going to name your son Joshua, right? That's a great name. Jehovah is salvation. Amen to that. And so they named their son Joshua. And this man Joshua was the protege, protege of Moses. He's the young general. He's the one eventually is going to lead the people into the promised land. And so Joshua is this mighty guy, the studly guy, the thick guy. Okay, Mo- Josh, get some guys and go out there and fight the Amalekites. Now Moses is the leader. Does Moses grab a sword and run down with Joshua, or what does he do? And you know, when we watch what he does, we're going to get a picture of how we overcome the flesh. Moses did not go down into the valley of interaction, 
but up on the hill of intercession. He didn't go down to the valley to interact with the world. He went up on the hill to intercede before God. And you know what? That's where the victory is won. We're supposed to go down and, inter and interact with the world. We're supposed to be down there and doing battle. We're supposed to bring our sword, which is the Word of God, and share our faith. But you know what? If there's no one interceding, that battle will never be won. We must intercede first so we might have victory in the interaction. Amen? And so Moses is going to go up on top of the hill, and he's going to intercede. It says, So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So when his hands were held up, Israel was victorious. What is he holding in his hand? The rod. What is the rod a typology or a picture of? The cross. How do we defeat the flesh? Only at the cross. When his hands are up, holding up the cross, surrender, worship, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I put my faith in you. There's victory over the flesh. But when the hands drop, the flesh would run right over the top of Israel. So here's Moses interceding on behalf. This is the heart of a pastor. He goes up and he's interceding on behalf of the people. He's holding up the rod. But you know what happens when you're holding up a rod? Your arms get weary. And you know what happens to some of us sometimes in our walk with the Lord? We get weary. Our faith gets weary. We grow tired. We get caught up with the things of the world. And our hands start to drop. And that's exactly what happens to Moses. He has his hands up. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. A picture of prayer, a picture of worship, a picture of surrender. Again, victory did not come based on the strength of those in the valley, but on the intercession of those on the hilltop. You know what Pastor Chuck says? That the reason that God did such a great work in Calvary Chapel was not the method or even the message, but that there were always people who prayed. And you know what? If we want to reach Santa Cruz County, if we want to turn the, this godless place back to its name, Santa Cruz, Holy Cross, if we want to see God do that, we need to be praying. We want to see God bring victory in the valley, we need to intercede on the hilltop. Amen? We need to be spending time in His presence, crying out for people by name, and then watch God work. And here's what Moses is doing. He's up on the hilltop. He's holding it up, but his hands grow weary and his hands begin to fall. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So his hands became weary. You know, the Bible says, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. That's what the Bible says. So pray without ceasing. The Bible says keep praying, keep knocking, keep asking. Why do we need to keep praying? Why do we need to keep our hands up? Why doesn't God just answer us the first time? Although sometimes He does. But why is not He doesn't answer us the first time every time? Let me tell you why. Because God desires that prayer would not just change the things around us, but that it would change us. Amen? Prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. And as we pray and we keep seeking and we keep knocking and we keep asking and we keep coming before Him, we can't help but become more like Him. Amen? You spend time in the presence of God, you're going to become more like Him. You're going to become more like the Son. You're going to become truly a Christian. But you have to spend time in His presence or that won't happen. And so if we just, if we just threw up a Holy Spirit missile, right? You know, th three-second prayer, Lord, you know, heal Him. And it happened every single time. We wouldn't, we wouldn't tarry in His presence. Amen? We wouldn't come to Him day after day after day. And the Lord desires that we fall at His feet. 
You know what? Knowing Him transforms us. And again, not just about seeing things change, but it's about seeing me change. You know what? We don't pray like we should because we're weary. Amen? How many, how many confess that that's true in your life? You don't pray like you should because you get weary. That's me. i got both my hands up. I know I should pray more frequently. I know I should pray with more fervency. I know that that's what God's heart is for me. But you know what? I get weary. And so did Moses. But what I love about this is this is a picture and shows us that Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. Amen? You know what? Christianity is about you all by yourself. Christianity, there has to be fellowship. There has to be people to come along and hold up your hands. When Moses' hands went down, Aaron and Hur came up and stood there and held up his hands all day long. And you know what? So often as Christians, we get so prideful that we don't want to share with people that we're struggling. We don't want to call people up and say, could you pray for me? You know what? I believe that every Christian ought to have three or four friends that know you so well that they could probably get you thrown in prison. You know what I mean? I mean, people that know everything about you. I've got at least ten friends like that. I've got several who are senior pastors of other churches that can totally relate to me. And I'll call them up, Rob McCoy, Matt Valencia, Dino Ashiki, other guys. I call them up and I just share my heart with them and they're right where I'm at. And I talk to these guys every week. And I know that they're just going to pray for me. They're not going to condemn me. They're going to encourage me. And you know what? As Christians, we've got to stop putting on the false face and pretending everything's perfect all the time. Amen? We need to start saying, you know what? I'm blowing it at work. Would you pray for me? You know, my marriage, I'm struggling. My marriage, I've been short with my wife. Would you pray for me? You know, my kids, I'm having difficulties with my kids. Would you pray for me? And you know what? I believe every Christian needs people like Aaron and her. We need people that when we grow weary, someone will come up and just hold up our hands. I have several people in this church right here. You know, Chris and Bill and my dad, the other elders in this church, who call me, who write me letters, and they don't even know, but they're right on time. They don't even know, but they're right on time when they call me today. I, I taught last night, I taught Monday night, I'm closing a book at work, I just moved, I'm a little overwhelmed, I got to the office today, and I was really lightheaded, I didn't even know if I could study, and a friend of mine calls me on the phone, I pick it up, and he goes, hey Dave, I just knew you were studying, I just want to pray for you, can I pray for you? And he prayed and said, Lord, I pray that it would not be a labor, but it would be a joy for him to be in your word today. And I thought, oh man, that is so on time. And my hands were weary, and he was being Aaron. He came and just held up my hand. And you know what? We need to be that way. And we can be that way if we spend time in God's presence. Amen? If we're spending time praying and seeking after him, we're going to have discernment and know, oh, I need to go pray for them. I need to go put my arm around her, my arm around him. Love them, encourage them. And so that's what's happening here. And Moses' hands are weary, but now they stay up all day long. Now what's awesome to me is Joshua. Look at the next verse, verse 13. So Joshua defeated Amalek. The flesh went down. Why? Because the hands were raised. But do you know what's awesome to me? Is when Joshua and the army of, the Malik, uh, of Israel turned and looked over their shoulder and looked up on that hill, you know what they saw? This is an awesome picture to me. They saw three men on a hill. Three men on a hill. And they saw one holding up his hands attached to a board, a piece of wood. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of the cross. There's going to be, there was a day coming when at Golgotha, at Calvary, they would look back and they would see a picture of Christ. And here they're seeing a picture of Christ and they're running over the top of the flesh. Why? Because of the crucifixion. Because what was about to come? Jesus' death. Jesus' intercession. And then what's awesome to me about this is that Moses was interceding on their behalf 
And after Jesus died, where is he right now? The Bible says he's seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us. Amen? He's interceding for us. This is such a clear picture of Jesus. Three men on a hill holding up the wood in surrender to the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus did when He went to the cross. He surrendered to the Father and He took our sin so that we might have victory over the flesh, over sin and death. And here Moses is doing exactly the same thing, not even a clue that it pointed to the Messiah. And here we are looking at God's Word. And it's such an awesome picture, amen? Doesn't it bless you to look at the Bible? Don't you? I mean, it's, it gets exciting to me when I see things that are so clear. So when we get weary, we too need to have those who will hold up our hands, those who will come alongside of us. It's interesting to note that what did Joshua defeat those in the valley with? Look what it says, the last word of verse 13. With the sword. Sword's a picture of what? Word of God. So those who are interceding, it's prayer, it's surrender, it's worship. And then those who are down in the valley, hand-to-hand combat with the world, what do they use? The sword. The Word of God. You want to reach people for Christ? Share the Word of God with them. Amen? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Bring them the Word. Bring them the Bible. I love it. Verse 14, we're almost done. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Write it in the book. What book do you think he's talking about here? Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. That's the book he's talking about. He says, write it in the book. Moses penned it, but the Holy Spirit inspired it. Amen? The only reason that this book is 66 books, 40 authors, 3 continents, 3 languages, 1,500 years, no contradictions. The only reason that's possible is because God wrote it. You get three people in a room talking about anything, they're going to disagree. Amen? Let alone 40 people on three different continents and three different languages over a 1,500 year span. There's no way they'd be agreeing on anything unless God did it. Amen? And that's why the Word of God is perfect. It's perfect. Anybody tells you anything otherwise, say, I love when people tell me, you know, uh, the Bible's filled with contradictions. Really? Show me one. There aren't any. Nice try. I love when they say that. They're just, bab- they're just repeat babble they heard somewhere else. You know, people, oh yeah, oh, I, I don't believe in the Bible. Really? So how, you spend a lot of time reading it? Well, no, I, I haven't really read it. You haven't read it, but you don't believe in it? Well, no. That's pretty ignorant, isn't it? Well, well yeah. But, I mean, you know, they just don't even, you know, they don't believe in something they've never read. And you know what? That's why God wants us to be the word to them. Amen? God wants us to bring the word to them, those who haven't read it. This is a picture, again, of the cross. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and now he's interceding on our behalf. And he said, write it in the book. And then he says there, and I will blot out a Amalek from under heaven. Anybody met an Amalekite lately? Any guys ever met an Amalekite? Anybody raise, raise your hand if you met an Amalekite. Well, you haven't met any because they're gone. No, you haven't, bro. They're all dead. Okay? They're all dead. Why? Because God said they'd be dead. And God wiped him out off the face of the earth. Verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will war with Amalek from generation to generation. This battle with the flesh wages on today. And he named this altar, The Lord is my banner, or Yahweh Nisse. And Moses is declaring that the Lord is the standard for his people. So we're going to continue to deal with our flesh every day. The reality is, until we get to heaven... We're going to carry this dead carcass around that we call our body, right? I mean, just don't wash your body for a couple days and you'll find out how dead you really are. You're dying, right? I mean, you stink and that's what happens, right? And the good news is that one of these days we're going to leave this temporal tent and we're going to spend eternity with Almighty God forevermore. But until then, 
may we be used for Him. So in review, while the manna of God's Word feeds us, and it is sweet, and is the standard for all truth, God says He elevates His Word above His name, we as His followers should also thirst for a deeper relationship through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Too many people are afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is real. He is God, and He wants to pour Himself out on you. You know what? The Bible says if you ask to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that God will give it to you. You don't have to stand and wait and tarry. You don't have to try to speak in tongues. You don't have to do any of that. You just simply ask, Lord, I want more of you. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute. You've prayed that before. Why do you pray that again? I love what Pastor Don says, because we leak, right? I mean, we need more of the Holy Spirit because we leak, right? We're on, we can be doing great on fire for God, and then we get our eyes off of Him, and we get our eyes turned away from Him. But we need to have that power of the Holy Spirit, which will bring a supernatural love for God and the lost, and greater power and boldness to witness to a lost and a dying world. And in the daily battle that we have every day with our flesh, you want to put the flesh to death? Learn from Moses' example. Pray. Surrender. Die to yourself. Amen? And watch what God will do. Let's close with prayer. Let's pray. The worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And we thank you for such a clear picture of the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that the trial that the children of Israel went through was to point us to what it means to have a deeper and a fresher relationship with you. And Lord, I just pray right now, if there's anybody here, that Father, they desire, Lord, to go beyond that inexperience. But Lord, they truly want to have, to be baptized with the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I just ask right now that they would, just as your word says, confess you before men. As we confess you before men, you'll confess us before the Father in heaven. With every head bowed, if there's anybody here, and you just say, you know what? I want to know that baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to go beyond where I am with the Lord. I want to go deeper in Him. I want to taste that water that pours out of the rock. If there's anybody here at all, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, and I want to pray for you. Is there anybody? God bless you guys. God bless you guys. God bless you. God bless you. Praise the Lord. God bless you guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of these who are standing. Lord, I thank you, Father God, just for the the boldness to make a stand for you now. Lord, if we can't stand for you in this room, we'll never stand for you in the world. But Lord, I just ask right now that you would pour out afresh, a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit, not just with them or in them, but upon them, Father. That, Lord, they would know that supernatural love for a lost and dying world. That you'd give them supernatural boldness for those around them. That, Lord, you would equip them for the ministry that you've called them to. And, Father, we thank you, Lord, that without you we can do nothing. So anything we do is by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we all, I, Lord, I pray for myself, Lord, that I would decrease, that your Spirit would increase. Lord, that we would die to self and be filled with you. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. You're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.